rhapsody, enthusiastic expression of feeling, an epic poem, a recitation, highly emotional utterance, literary, music in a regular form, stitched together, improvised, a collection of effusive, extravagant discourse, rapturous ecstasy. You're listening to A Rose Rhapsody. I understand. Uh, so when I hit I'm unfortunately, I can think of it just yet right now as I'm afraid to go from home. And now, the read. Gertrude thinks about the breeze. It must be a warm breeze, barely moving the curtain lace from the yawning windows, a languid breeze of humid air drifting up from the river, and people nod lazily. Yes, they lazily nod in the heat as they plod by on the sidewalk. Gertrude sits on the porch swing. The chains creak rhythmically. The oscillating fan blows up her skirt. The Coke bottle sweats in her hand. And Gertrude parts her legs as she caresses her forehead with the cold, sweating bottle, while her parents' voices drift out the window. A word here and there? Silence, mostly. An insect buzzing by, and more silence. A voice from the street. A courting voice dripping with desire on the humid air. Good evening. And she closes her legs, sitting up demure and with proper propriety should it be a schoolchild wandering by, unhindered by the heat, the barely moving wet night breeze, one child of many that is hers from September to June, but not now, not yet. There is no child, just this young man, younger than her, but yet much a man, enough a man to ease the heat, given the chance, but there is propriety in the passing child that might pass, might see, might talk a scandal, not proper propriety for a teacher with no pets, no, no, that sort of thing is wrong. Her young man leans closer, but not too close, still allowing the breeze, the warm breeze between them, the propriety of a breeze, and he crosses his legs for this warm breeze of propriety, but still she knows, at least suspects, and his whispers are scalding on her ear as he guesses how many items of clothing she wears, challenging her to tell him the minimum propriety allows to stay cool on an impossibly hot, humid, damp kiss of a warm breeze night. Instead, she talks of her dream. She talks of nursing, leaving for school one day on a nightingale dream, but really she is challenging him to say the right thing, come up with the right words to save her from her fears, her failure, leaving home, uncertain terrain with new challenges bigger than life, and she speaks these words aloud, loud enough for her parents to hear, not whispered like his, words carried in through the curtains with the warm breeze, the humid, wet air that gets tossed in a swirling current of the fan air turning from the ceiling and the oscillating fan on the floor of the porch, but they already know and do nothing to encourage. He counters with a confidence that is surprising for a young man, and he slides the hem of her skirt up with a forefinger to allow the breeze of a fan greater access while talking of the nearby riverside, where it's cooler at night, if for no, to her, other reason than the quiet sound of running water soothes the thickening heat. Yes, by the riverside, 
on the bank beneath trees, dripping with heat away from the path. But there's no one there now at this hour. Don't move, he says, because he saw it in a movie or read it in a book. This is his confidence, and she doesn't. She doesn't move. And when the stars shatter and the river rises, crest and rises again, when she can't breathe for the weight of him, gasping for air, it was then she abandoned her confidence. She abandoned her plans by the river for nursing because she heard what she wanted to hear, for leaving because her man said what she wanted him to say the way she wanted to hear it. It was easier this way not to risk all the chances, better this way despite everything. Besides, the children needed her. And even now in the humid air, when the breeze is warm and the coke is warm, the beads of sweat warm on the bottle and the dress billows pregnant by the fan aimed at her slouching body, drifting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, the old swing creaking, don't move. The warm breeze whispered and she closes her eyes to contain herself the propriety required for passing neighbors and strangers so they can't see the heat of desire awakened and abandoned. Ah, but September would bring the children and nursing would be forgotten and life would continue in safety from year to year. The object is not to move, not to be seen, to somehow get through to the other side. The other side. Time disappearing, no future. The past, the present, the present, the past, holding on to what she knows when fear creeps in. If she had known how impossible life can be enduring propriety, an illusion, really, you ultimately can never hold on to. Even in the safety of a home, you build with the man who appeared one sultry night, worked hard, drank hard, and died modestly. Much the man, her man Herman, he always was. But oh, if she had known, ending up here when there could have been so much more than summer swinging at the beck and call of warm breezes struggling through windows gaping for air. So much time, so many years, and still the river runs, still the breeze blows, and Gertrude closes her eyes and swings, drifts on the breeze. You've been listening to Gertrude by Richard C. Washer, read by Sherry Heron. Some Woman to Some Man by Edith Wharton, read by Raven Bonnewell. We might have loved each other after all, have lived and learned together, yet I doubt it. You ask, I think, too great a sacrifice— or else perhaps I rate myself too dear. Whichever way the difference lies between us, would common cares have helped to lessen it? A common interest and a common lot? Who knows, indeed. We choose our path and then stand looking back and sighing at our choice and say, perhaps the other road had led to fruitful valleys dozing in the sun. Perhaps, perhaps... But all things are perhaps, and either way there lies a doubt, you know. We've but one life to live, and fifty ways to live it in, and little time to choose the one in fifty that will suit us best. And so the end is that we part and say we might have loved each other after all. (laughs) 
Mid my gold brown curls there twined a silver hair. I plucked it idly out and scarcely knew twas there. Coiled in my velvet sleeve it lay and like a serpent hissed. Me thou canst pluck and fling away, one hair is lightly missed. But how on that near day, when all the wintry army muster in array? You've been listening to Mid My Gold Brown Curls by George Eliot. I'm Raven Bonnewell. Poem by Emily Dickinson Read by Raven Bonnewell I died for beauty, but was scarce adjusted in the tomb when one who died for truth was lain in an adjoining room. He questioned softly, Why I failed? For beauty, I replied. And I for truth, himself are one, we brethren are, he said. And so, as kinsmen met a knight, we talked between the rooms, until the moss had reached our lips and covered up our names. You've been listening to The Read at the Rose Rhapsody. You're right. You're right. You're right. So, Episodes of The Rose Rhapsody drop the first Monday of every month and can be found on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you take your listening pleasure. That fabulous horn you've been hearing belongs to Marcus Roots, along with his collaborator on the keys, Adrian Ruiz. Additional tracks from Sessions of Rhapsody in Blue feature guitarist Matt Gold, Hayter Garcia on percussion, and the tenor saxophone of Irvin Pierce. To learn more about us and what we do, head over to theroserhapsody.com. And if you love interesting new content as much as we do, spread the word or drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. week's podcast was produced by Trevor Cochran and Richard C. Washer and is a product of the Rose Theatre Company. All rights reserved. I'm Leslie Kopelinski. Now let's get back to that horn.